It's time for us to get into the Word of God and hear God's Word uh, speak to our hearts, our minds, and our souls. I'm going to ask if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 31, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Let's ask God's blessing uh, upon uh, our hearing his Word today. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, let them be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Listen to what God's word says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of of the world. I want to talk about today the king is coming. The king is coming. In Romans chapter 3 verse 23 it says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans 6 and 23 it says for the wages of sin is death. That the penalty for sin is death and we've all sinned. In Romans 5 and 8, it says, But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Even though we all sin, sin separated us from God. The wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. We all deserve to die. But Christ, he paid the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross. And then Romans 10 and 9 says that if you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you can believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. Now we understand why Jesus had to come from heaven to earth to die on the cross. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. But all of that happened because he paid the penalty for our sins. We all sinned. We all messed up. We all aimed and missed the mark. Our sin separated us from God. The penalty is death. Jesus paid the penalty as an expression of the love of God. And now, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We understand why Jesus had to die on the cross from the perspective of God. But today I want to raise this issue. Why did the people on this earth in the first century in Israel why did they execute Jesus? Why did they put Jesus on the cross? Why did they kill Jesus? And I know some people will argue, uh, well, they killed Jesus because he claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, you know, I, I disagree with that because there were plenty of people in the first century living in Israel that claimed to be the Son of God, that claimed to be the Messiah, and they didn't crucify them. That's not what it was. Why would they crucify Jesus? He healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, he fed the hungry, he, he blessed people, he helped people, and then he told people about God, and why would they crucify him? Why, why would 
the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Roman soldiers, Pilate, why would they treat Jesus like this and crucify him on a cross? I submit unto you, it's not because he claimed to be the Messiah, but because he challenged their political, economical, um, social, and religious systems. Those systems in the first century in Israel were so corrupt, so oppressive, uh, that Jesus came and rebelled against those systems and challenged those systems. And Jesus had so much influence on people and thousands of people would listen to him and follow him. And the people who were running those systems, they couldn't take it. And they decided that they would kill Jesus because of the political, social, economical, religious, corrupt, oppressive systems of that day. Remember when... When Jesus was born, word began to, to spread uh, that he's born king of the Jews. Born king. That's why Herod got so disturbed and tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Not because as a baby Jesus, he claimed to be the son of God. No, <laughs> because of political system that they were trying to keep in place. Y'all, the Roman soldiers weren't concerned about Jesus being a Messiah. That's the, the Jews talked all that talk. The Romans didn't care about that. But the way the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees got the Romans in on it, they said he's claiming to be a king. And remember in the Gospel of John, others tried to make him a king. And so they go to the Romans and say, hey, we only have one king, that's Caesar. And here is this Jesus claiming to be king. It was a political system that Jesus rebelled against that caused them uh, to seek to crucify him and a social system uh, where the, the marginalized, those that they, that they felt were unimportant, who were insignificant, the marginalized, Jesus, uh, he addressed that system. Matter of fact, one of the criticisms of Jesus by his haters was that he ate and fellowship with sinners and tax, collect tax collectors were considered to be traitors to the Hebrew people. And, and Jesus comes and messes with their social systems, the ones they say are not important, the ones they say are, they, they marginalize, that they're insignificant. Jesus hung out with them, and Jesus spent time with them to address that oppressive social system and then the economic injustices that were going on, where the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poor, and the rich were manipulating the poor in order to continue to get rich. And Jesus said, no, we're going to change that system. That's why Jesus came saying, I was hungry, you fed me, I was outdoors, and then I was taken in, I was in prison. You he said, I'm changing this economic system. And then, of course, that religious system that oppressed people, Jesus went into the temple, turned over in the temple, in that religious system, and turned over the table of those uh, who, who exchanged money. And then he, he turned uh, over the chairs of those who sold doves. He said, I'm tired of y'all in this religious system manipulating people and the poor just so you could hold on to your position and your prestige and your prominence and hold on to your possessions. And Jesus started messing with that system. <laughs> He said, he started uh, even on the Sabbath day healing the sick. And that says, no, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Well, the Bible didn't say that. But this system that you put in place, this religious system to manipulate people to your own personal advantage. And when Jesus started rebelling against those systems 
And when Jesus started challenging those political, social, economic, religious, corrupt systems, that's when they said, we got to get rid of him. We, we got to get him. And Jesus says, well, it, I, I've come with a new system. I got a, a new kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God? Yes, the kingdom of God. The rule of God. The reign of God. The government of God. Because this oppressive Roman government that suppresses the Hebrew people Jesus says that that kingdom is messed up, but I got another kingdom. But even Isaiah prophesied about this. For unto us, a child is born. For unto us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon, the rule, the reign shall be, that he is going to govern differently from these oppressive governments that we've experienced with, with all of this corruption. And Jesus Jesus says, I got a different kingdom. And it was just so hard for even his own disciples to understand this kingdom. They thought, even Jesus' own disciples thought that Jesus was going to come with some military might and overthrow the Roman government and then establish uh, this, this Jewish government and restoration on this earth. And Jesus said, no, my kingdom, my rule, my reign, my government is not of this earth. And he kept trying to explain to them uh, the difference between his kingdom, my kingdom is not of this earth. It's, it's different from this oppressive government, this kingdom that the Romans operate within. That Jesus says, my economy, God, the economy of God is different from the economy of the world. The economy of the world, they say get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can, poison the rest. But Jesus says in the kingdom, the economy of God is, is a lot different. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Matter of fact, a rich man walked up on Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? Jesus said, well, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. And he started thinking about all his riches and that system that worked for him. He said, I can't go out, I can't go out like that. Because the economy of Jesus is different than the economy of this world. And, and the social aspect of Jesus is different from the, so, these, the marginalized and the poor that people kick to the curb. Jesus identifies with them. When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it also unto me. And then Jesus challenged that religious system. And as he challenged the religious system, he said, uh, you've heard it said of old, uh, but I say unto you. He's challenging that system. And he, he, taught, he started healing on the Sabbath day and doing things that challenge that oppressive religious system as he's showing his disciples the difference between the kingdom, the rule, the reign, and the government of God and how this world operates with its oppressive governments. That's why they sought to take him out. And so as Jesus is explaining the kingdom, we get to Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus says, in verse 1, that the kingdom of heaven is like. And he begins to explain in Matthew 25 and 14 that the kingdom of heaven is like. He's given parables, stories, illustrations to show us the kingdom of heaven. And in these stories, in the, these parables, he helps us to understand the definite expectations that the Lord places on those of us who are in his kingdom. He says, if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then there are some definite expectations that he places on your life. 
the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast, a, a, a wedding ceremony where the bride and her bridal party are waiting on the bridegroom to show up. And in that day, in that culture, that, that could go on for days. It, and they don't know when the bridegroom is coming. So you got to stay ready and be ready. He may even come in the middle of the night. So you got to make sure that you have some oil and the oil is so that your lamp can burn, that fire can burn. And if it's in the middle of the night, you'll be able to follow the bridegroom. And you don't know that what, what day he's coming. You don't know what hour. So you got to stay ready with your oil. And it talks about uh, five wise young women that had oil for their lamps to burn. But then five foolish young women that when the bridegroom showed up, they, didn't, they weren't ready. They didn't have oil. At some point, they had oil. But evidently, they didn't use the oil for the reason it was designed for that particular purpose. That's where the expectation is. The expectation is, I've given you oil. And since I've given you oil, you ought to be on fire. You ought to be able to burn. You ought to be able to bring some enlightenment in this dark time. There's an expectation that comes with being the, in the kingdom. The kingdom of God, Matthew 25 and 14, is like a a rich man that does some international travel. And when he takes off the travel, he leaves five talents with one servant, two talents with another servant, one talent with the third servant. And then this international travel, traveler, he comes back and he's left all of his resources, all of this money with these three different servants. He didn't leave them the, all the same amount of money, but he left all of them significant amount of money. And then the one that had the least, and he gave it according to their ability. If, if you can't handle all of that, I'm not giving you all of that. And then the one that he gave the least to, the, the one that had the one talent, uh, he put it in the ground and he hid it, didn't do it. He's supposed to put it somewhere that it appreciates in value, that it grows, but he didn't do anything with it. There was an expectation that you would invest it in something that will help it grow. I'm trying to show you in the kingdom of God, there is expectations that the Lord has placed on us. I've given you oil. Uh, you ought to be doing something with that. I've given you money. I expect for you to not just bury it and do nothing, uh, but to, to help it, to use it to grow. And then I've given you opportunity. Wait a minute, Pastor. Where in Matthew 25 uh, do you see opportunity? Well, in verse 35, it says, I was hungry and I was I was outdoors, uh, I was in prison, I was thirsty, I was sick. Yo, that's opportunity. Whenever we see somebody hungry, that's an opportunity for us to feed somebody. Whenever we see somebody homeless, that's an opportunity to help find them adequate housing. Whenever we see somebody without the adequate clothing, that's an opportunity for us to help them to find those resources. That whenever we see somebody who's in prison, that is an opportunity for us to come alongside and provide what they need. Watch the expectation in the kingdom of God as followers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I've given you oil. I've given you money. I've given you opportunity. Now you need to do something with that. And that's my word to somebody today, that it's not enough just to give your life to Christ and then sit on the sideline and do nothing. He says, I've given you so much, and now I have expectations of you to be able to do something. We sit and, and look at the social ills of life or the economic depressions in life, 
and we look at how horrific the, uh, the prison systems are and the police brutality, and we get mad at God and do nothing. Jesus says, no, these are opportunities to do something, and the expectation is there for you, and there's going to be an inspection. There's going to be an examination, a decisive inspection that I don't just expect you to do something. I'm going to inspect what I expect. I learned that a long time ago in administration, that people don't just do what you expect. <laughs> they do what you inspect. And Jesus says, there's going to be a judgment. There's going to be an act. The king is coming, and when the king comes, he's going to examine, what did you do with your oil? What did you do with your money? What did you do with the opportunities that I've given unto you? I've given you ability, oil, money. I've given you ability. And with that ability, I've given you uh, responsibility to feed the hungry, to help those who are sick, to help the marginalized, to help those who have faced social injustice. I've given you responsibility. And behind all of that comes ability. Even Peter Parker's uncle, Uncle Ben, taught us that with great power comes great responsibility. Stan Lee taught us uh, with Spider-Man that with great power comes great responsibility. And Jesus says that in the kingdom of God, that in the rule of the reign and the government of God, I've given you oil, I've given you money, that's ability, I've given you responsibility, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was outdoors, I, I've given you responsibility, and now there's accountability. You're going to have to give an account. And the, the man left home and left five talents with one servant, two with another, and one with the third. Then the man came back and began to inspect. What did you do with my five? Well, I invested it, got you five more. What did you do with my two? I invested it, got you two more. What did you do with my one? I did nothing with it. The judgment came that you had now had to give an account for how you operate with what God has given to us in his kingdom. And judgment day is going to come. The Bible says it is appointed unto everybody once to die. And after this, the judgment. The word of God speaks of the judgment seat of Christ. And you and I are going to have to one day have this inspection, this examination. We got to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says we got to give an account of every thought, every word, every action. Every thought, every word, every action. Jesus says, I've given to you the ability to think. I've given you the ability to speak. And I've given you the ability to act, to do something. And then we got to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's going to ask you and I, what did you do with your ability to think? What did you think about? What was your mind on? What did you do with the ability to speak? Did you speak truth to power? Did you speak to help the marginalized? Did you speak for those who have no voice? Did you speak God's word? Did you speak about Jesus? Did you speak about salvation? Did you speak the truth in the times of lies? And what did you do with your actions? When they were hungry and thirsty and people outdoors and, and in poverty, what did you do with your actions? 
We're going, and, and then some of us are going to be like that man that had the one talent and buried. We're going to come up with all these excuses why I didn't do anything, especially when I'm the one that has the least. We're so busy comparing our resources with other people, and then we find out that other folk have more than us, and we feel like, well, I don't need to do anything. No, you're not the exception because you don't have a lot. Because if you learn how to take the little you have and put it in the hands of a big God, a big God can do big things with the little that you place in his hand. Even if it's two small pieces of fish and five biscuits, if you can get it in the hands of Jesus, he can feed hungry people and feed a hungry community. We can't come up with these excuses. We, we're not the exception. Jesus was even speaking to his own disciples. They were oppressed by the same government. They were dealing with poverty. They were dealing with the same social ills of that time. And the expectation was still there. You're supposed to do something. Uh, who was it? J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt was defensive end in the NFL for the Houston Texans. And in August of 2017, Hurricane Harvey comes through, hits Louisiana, hits Texas, and especially in Houston. And when that happened, man, it was more than a uh, $100 billion worth of damage, more than 100 to homes and businesses, and people ended up hungry and homeless and all. Okay, it was a mess. In 2017 of August, it was during that time that J.J. Watt was in Dallas. He couldn't even get back to Houston because of the hurricane, because of the storm and all the damage that had taken place. And in Dallas, in a hotel, you could tell he was emotionally distraught by all the pain that the hurricane, the storm had brought. And he pulled out his cell phone and went on his social media and began to plead with people to please make donations to help me to help these people here in Houston. They are really hurting here, and I need you to help me. And he's on his cell phone. And he says, I have a goal of raising $200,000, and I need y'all to help me. And then he said this, I'm going to give the first 100000 and then by the end of that same Sunday, when that storm hit, the same Sunday, he had raised more than $200,000. He had surpassed the goal the same day. That's because Chris Paul that played for the NBA team in Houston, the Rockets, he gave $50,000. So they had reached 200000 very quickly. So he came back. J.J. Watt the next day and said, listen, it, it happened so fast. I didn't know it would come that quickly. I still want to give you a chance. If you want to help me help these people, please make a donation. And we reset the goal to 500000 That day they surpassed. That Monday they surpassed more than 500000 So the next day he reset it. It's happening so quick, y'all. I didn't know y'all get as much. The goal was $2 million. By the third day they surpassed that. Then the goal was $5 million. By the end of the first week, J.J. Watt had raised more than $18 million in one week to help the hungry and the hurting and those going through that storm in Houston. And in three and a half weeks, he raised more than $41 million. Remember, the goal was $200,000. J.J. Watt gave $100,000 towards that. In three and a half weeks, he had $41 million. He comes back on his cell phone on social media. He says, listen, y'all, please stop sending money. Don't send any more money. We're trying to figure out what to do with the money you already sent. And they found great things to do with it. They fed the hungry. They built rebuilt homes and rebuilt businesses. They helped uh, with, with children and education. They did so many things with those resources. And J.J. Watt said, he said, I'd never, I, he said I'm, I'm so surprised. I'm shocked that it turned out like this. I didn't know it would be like this. Only had a goal of 200,000. We raised more than 41 million. J.J. Watt learned then what I learned as a youngster in Sunday school at church, that you can't beat God giving. 
The more you give to him, the more he gives to you. And if you give $100,000 to help the hurting and the hungry, then God will turn around and back that up with $41 million. Because if you take the little you have and put it in the hands of a big God, then God with you can do big things with it. And in this inspection, in Matthew chapter 25, it talks about there is going to be this separation. A separation? Yeah, he says that there's going to be a separation. I expect you to do something. I'm giving you oil. I'm giving you money. I'm giving you opportunity. I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And now I, I, there's going to be a, there's going to be a separation. I'm, I'm going to separate the goats from the sheep. He says, now when the Son of Man comes back. When, it's talking about the parousia. It's talking about the second coming. It's talking about Jesus coming back again. This conversation starts in chapter 24. Jesus is on his way to Calvary right after this chapter. He's getting ready to die on the cross, and he still sees himself as a king, and he says when he comes back in this kingdom of God that there is going to be a separation. He says it's just like shepherds to separate their goats from their... Now remember, he says when he comes back. The king is coming when he comes back. It's not if he comes back, but when it happens. Like shepherds, shepherds in their flock, y'all, they would have goats and sheep. And during the day, the goats and the sheep, they would mingle and mix during the day. Goats and sheep would all be together. But at night, the shepherds would separate the goats from the sheep. And Jesus said, in that judgment day, in that parousia, in that second coming, when the king comes back, that I'm going to separate the goats from the sheep. And in Scripture, y'all, sheep, uh, all time represent those of us that follow God, those of us who follow Jesus. Uh, that's why Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, the reason he's my shepherd, because I put my faith in him. I'm, I'm his sheep. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. Well, he's our good shepherd. We're his sheep. We know his voice. And he says that, that while we're on this earth, it's a lot of mixing and mingling. But in that second coming, it's going to be a separation. The goats from the sheep. And there's only two options here. It's goat or sheep. Ain't no in-between. It's, it's heaven or hell. It's right or wrong. It's truth or a lie. There is no in-between. And there is going to come a day of reckoning. There is going to come a judgment day. There is going to come a day of separation. And how is that? distinct, distinguished separation going to be determined. It's not going to be determined by the color of skin. It's not going to be determined by what country you live in. It's not going to be determined by your culture. It's not going to be determined by what college you've gone to. It's not going to be determined by how much cash you have. The separation is going to be determined by conduct. I was hungry. You fed me. I was homeless, you found me housing. That I was in prison, you came to check on me. I was sick, you gave me consultation. That, uh, that I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Come and inherit the kingdom of God. That's the sheep. I was hungry, and you cut SNAP, that supplemental nutritional assistant program for food for the poor. Jesus says, I was hungry, and you cut wick, 
women, infant, and children, the nutritional food program for women, infants, and children, and you sought to cut that? I was hungry. And you created a food desert in poor communities, in food swamps where healthy, affordable food options were not available. I was in prison. And you treated me differently from the rich whites who did the same thing I did, but because I'm black or brown or poor, I've been treated differently. I was in prison, and you knew the pandemic was going on. You knew COVID-19, and then this messed up condition and the confinement that you had me in, and in so many cases, other folk doing the same thing that never got in that environment. But you sat there and created an environment to perpetuate the sickness and the disease. I was in prison. And you provided no re-entry programs, no rehabilitation. Jesus says, I was homeless. And you didn't even pay me a working wage to be able to afford my rent or to buy a house for me and my family. And there's going to be a separation, not based on color or culture or whatever church you've gone to, not, not based on country or college or how much cash you have, but conduct. How do we treat the marginalized? How do we treat the poor? And that separation, the goats on one side, the sheep on the other, that's it. It's only goats and sheep. And, this, and let me say this too. This is not, this is not some uh, work for salvation kind of theology. So don't, don't mistweet me and don't mistext me. And don't misquote me. This is not working for salvation. That's not what this is about. Because Jesus says... You come and inherit the kingdom of God, he says in the text. That the Son of Man is going to come in his glory with his angels, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Come and inherit the kingdom of God, not work for it. You don't work for an inheritance. Y'all, the way you inherit something is that you have a relationship with somebody that's got something, then they die and leave you something. And y'all, we don't work to inherit the kingdom of God. But we have this relationship with Jesus, and you know he's got something. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. And then he died, and he left us an inheritance of the kingdom of God. And I love this because it's really showing us the parousia, it's showing us the second coming, that in the midst of all that was going on, in the midst of all of that oppression, in the midst of all of those suppressive systems that were taking place, Jesus said, I'm going to challenge these systems. I'm going to rebel against these systems, but I'm going to bring a system that works. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, uh, the, the, the reign of God, the government of God, the systems of God, the structures of God, the Son of Man is going to come. It's talking about the second coming of the Lord. I love this because it shows that the Lord will show up. Even in the midst of all the hell that was going on, Jesus said, don't you sweat it. The, the, the king is coming. That kingdom is going to come. I love that. The second coming of Jesus. It's going to be a whole lot different from the first coming of Jesus. In the first coming of Jesus, y'all, Jesus was born in a manger in, in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid, laid in that manger. And he, when, when he first came, uh, he, he's all just with his stepdad and his mom and all. But he said, but in this second coming, when the Son of Man comes, when the King comes, I'm coming with my angels this time. And that is going to be different from the first coming of Jesus. 
in that first coming of Jesus, he was born to a little girl in the ghetto. But in the second coming, he's coming with all of his glory. In the first coming of Jesus, nobody recognized Jesus as the Lord, as the Messiah, as the coming king. In the first coming, even in Isaiah 53, it said there was nothing comely about him that anybody would appreciate him. He was a, a, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, and he was wounded and bruised. Nobody recognized him in the first coming. In the second coming, everybody's going to recognize him. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess to the glory of God the Father. He is coming. That's what the text is teaching us. No matter how bad it looks now, the king is coming. Don't you give up. Don't you throw in the towel. Don't you hold up the white flag of surrender. The king is coming. And when he comes, he recognizes all that is going on. He recognizes it. He says, I was hungry. You fed me. I was outdoors. You took me in. I was in prison. You didn't come see me. I, I, I was sick and you didn't give me health care. And, and you, you sat up there when I was sick and you sought to cut affordable health care. And you dogged me because I had a pre-existing condition. He recognizes what it is that is going on, and he remembers that. Jesus is recalling that. He's rehearsing that. He's replaying that because he remembers and he rewards. He rewards. He says, I was hungry. You fed me. I was outdoors. You took me in. I was sick. You got me health care even though I had a pre-existing condition. He says, I was homeless, and you found me adequate housing for me and my family said all this then they said when did when did we see you like this when you did it to the least the lonely and the left out when you did it to the marginalized when you did it to the poor Jesus always identifies with the marginalized he always identifies with the poor when you've done it to them you've done it to me one of the things I learned in ministry is when we do for the poor and the marginalized when we do for the hungry and the hurting, we're not just doing it for the Lord. We're doing it to the Lord, and the Lord recognizes, and the Lord remembers, and the Lord rewards. He says, all right, now come on and inherit the kingdom of God. Come on and get the blessings of the Father. There's a reward that comes when you seek to bless other people. It comes back on you, and the king is coming. And when the king comes, it, there will be restoration. And for those who reject the king and for those whose conduct doesn't line up with the kingdom, there's going to be some issues with that too. He says it's going to be darkness and it's going to be weeping and it's going to be, King James Version, gnashing of teeth. It's going to be frustration. It says, I was hungry, you dogged me. I was in prison, you didn't check on me. I, I had a sickness and... You sought to cut off my affordable health care? <laughs> no, oh, it's going to be darkness and weeping and frustration. That's actually a reference to hell. But I keep telling y'all, hell is not just a location you go to when you die. Hell is a condition you still experience when you're still on earth. And some of us are catching hell right now because of how we treated the poor and the marginalized, how we treated the least, the lonely, and the left out, the homeless, and the sick, and those that are in prison but when you do right by the least, Jesus said, you're not just doing it for Jesus, you're doing it to Jesus. I'm so glad that the king is going to come. I know in these times in which we live, this social injustice and this unrest and police brutality and systemic racism, there's a lot going on. But don't you turn your back on Christ. Don't you turn your back on the church. Don't you walk away from God. Don't turn to drugs and alcohol. 
Don't you turn to suicidal thoughts and suicidal actions. The king is coming. And there's going to be a turnaround in this situation. Let, let me close it like this. I was, um, you know, during the pandemic, I, I, I have not watched any basketball, any, I'm a big NBA fan, but I turned all the sports off during this pandemic. And, uh, and I, I, all that old stuff they're playing and the classics and all that, I didn't watch any of it except one game. My, my youngest son, KJ, was watching uh, the game in, uh, in 2016, game seven of the NBA Finals with the Cleveland uh, Cavaliers going up against the Golden State Warriors, game seven. My son was watching, so I sat down to hang out with my son, so I watched that game. And I remember that game in 2016 when LeBron James was going up against Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green and, and uh, Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston. I mean, the Warriors had a great team. They won 73 games that year, more than any NBA team in the history of the NBA. And in that series, they had gone up 3-1. to one. Golden State had won three games. Cleveland had only won one. Golden State only needed to win one more game. Nobody in the history of the NBA has ever come back in the finals down three to one. Man, this thing is looking bad for them. So now it's game seven. Cleveland won those two. Now it's game seven. That's the game that they were showing, that classic. And uh, as I'm watching this old game, I, I remember when I watched it in 2016, I'm a, I've always been a big Le LeBron James fan. I like LeBron James on and off the court. And I'm a big fan. But when I watched that game, man, I watched it with a lot of angst. I watched it with a lot of um, anxiety. I watched it with uh, a lot of fear. <laughs> I watched it with a lot of worry. Because when you line up the Cleveland Cavaliers against the Golden State Warriors, man, it's, they're overmatched. There's, there's no way that they can do it. And then I'm watching the officials and those calls that the officials were making. I, was, I, I don't like those calls. And it was some fouls that were fouled, man. I, and I'm thinking, I'm watching the game in 2016 with all of this worry and fear and anxiety. That's the same game that LeBron made that block against Iguodala. And that's the same game that Irvin shot that three-pointer and sealed that win for them. And they won that game in 2016. Now, fast forward to the time of the pandemic in 2020. I'm watching the game again. Same game. Same Officials making calls that I don't appreciate. Same foul fouls. Same overmatched talent with the Cavaliers versus the Golden State. Same Golden State Warriors that won 73 games. But this time when I'm watching it, I have no fear. I have no anxiety. Same situation going on, but I, I have no worries. And the reason why is because I already knew how it was going in. <laughs> already knew uh, that Cleveland was going to get the victory, that LeBron would get the victory. So I could watch the same thing with no fear, no anxiety, no worry, because I knew the outcome. Jesus, as he's on his way to Calvary, in the midst of all of that oppression, in the midst of all of those corrupt systems, Jesus helped his disciples to understand the king is coming. And when the king comes with his kingdom, you're going to get the victory. And since you know you're going to get the victory, even when you see officials making calls that are against you, even when you see foul fouls going on, even when it seems overmatched, even when there's a history of defeat, 
You don't have to worry because you know how it's going to end. The king is coming back. Jesus is going to come. Victory is going to happen. And since you know we're going to get the victory, we can live this out, y'all, with joy. We can live this out with peace. We can live this out without worry because we know we're going to get the victory. Here it is. I'm done. When you line up the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2016 against the Golden State Warriors, there is no match. Future Hall of Famers all on Golden State's team. But the reason why Cleveland was able to get the victory, even though they were overmatched, even though they were facing overwhelming odds, even though they were trying to do something that had never been done in the history of the game, was because they had King James on the team. If I started calling the other players, you wouldn't even know who they were. But they were able to get the victory because King James was on the team. Overmatched, overwhelmed. History not on their side, but they were able to get the victory because King James is on their team. They said, I'm done with this message, but I want you to know it may seem as black and brown people in this nation that we're overmatched. It may seem as poor people in the United States that we're overlooked. History has been against us. But when you got the king on your team, everything is going to be all right. When you got the king on your side, you know you're going to get the victory. And I'm not talking about King James. I'm talking about King Jesus. And Jesus is Lord of Lords, and he is King of Kings. And when you got the king on your team, then you know victory is already yours, regardless of what it looks like right now.